Welcome to a Longer Table podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. Jeannie, welcome back to a Longer Table. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so honored to be a return guest. I know. I think you're my second. So very few people I've had come back. But I I obviously loved getting to chat with you the first time and really introducing people to you as my pastor and my friend and someone who took a chance on me and brought me onto your team. And honestly, like I've said this so many times, but for people who are new listening, working at Soul City Church absolutely changed my life. The mission of Soul City Church is leading people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. And it's so easy for me to recall that because it worked on me. It truly transformed me. And and let's be honest, transformation isn't a one-time thing, right? It's an ongoing thing. And it uh, continues to be true for me. And now that we live in LA, we obviously have a new church and we're getting plugged in and it's it's sweet. But I love that you and I, I can just shoot you a text and we can just catch up and you always in every interaction speak so much wisdom into my life. So I am excited for other people to receive that here. Oh, thank you. And that's so meaningful to know that uh, well, one, that you even remember the mission. <laughs> so th- that makes me happy. But two, that you said uh, that it works. It works on you. And and that's our prayer. You know this. We say this to everybody on their first day, that one day you're going to have a last day. And our hope is that you are not the same when you get to that last day, that, that there has been change and transformation and that you've become more aware of yourself and God and others. And that you don't look the same, you don't speak the same, but that you are more and more of who God created you to be. So I, I feel the same way. I feel like I'm the greatest greatest recipient of Soul City Church. So I'm just blessed to be a part of it. And I'm so grateful that our stories came together through that, but that they continue, that we yeah. continue to be friends and connect in life and and walk similar journeys even of, yes. of launching books out into the world. So it's such a blessing. Yeah, I had goosebumps when you were when you were saying that about the last day because truly I didn't get to work at at the church for a long time. It wasn't, you know, like I was there for a decade or anything, but in the short time that I did get to work at the church, I I experienced grace upon grace and um I learned how to be a better leader. I was called up into maturity that that needed to happen. Um I was shepherded. I was guided through confession. I was ultimately, I feel like so much of what I learned was that nothing matters more than the integrity that we have. And that, yeah. So I, I guess for for someone listening who's like, oh, transformation, these words that sound so, I don't know, cliche or like, what does that even mean? What I can say is that when you read my book and when you read Jeannie's book, you will you will get so many little stories of they're not always these huge moments, but sometimes they're just these really little moments, but they they really change the course of our life and they bring us into the light. And yeah, I'm just so grateful. So I had chills when you were saying that. It just I wish I feel like looking at you across the screen right now, I'm just like, oh, I want to give her a big hug. <laughs> Same. Um, but I remember sitting at Beatrix in Chicago with you. And you wouldn't let me pay for our brunch. And you said it's because, oh, you know, you can pay when you're a New York Times bestseller. Here you are. Like, your book is out in the world, Jeannie. This is huge. Your book is called What's Here Now? 
And I love that. It could not, when I saw that title, I was like, that could not be a more genie title because it's a question. And I love that. Tell me a little bit about how that book came to be. Uh, Because I believe that we can set out to write certain books, but ultimately the book we need to write is what's going to come out of us. So maybe that wasn't even the book you wanted to write, but I want to hear how that came to be. Yeah, well, I think some of the best books are the books that write us before we write them. And that is for sure this book. This book was writing me and at work in my soul long before it ever became words on a page. And and I know that you know this about me, but I've I've tried to as best I can. And I'm, I am flawed and imperfect, uh, as they come, but I, I long for the, the messages that come out of my life to be seeded so deeply in my life. And, um, you know, that's true for me as, as a communicator, as a writer, I I want the work to be done in me before it comes through me. And that's really what this book is in my story. Uh, you know, a few years into Soul City, uh, it was just this beautiful, growing, emerging um, church and, and this eclectic, diverse, incredible community that, you know, I, I would just like pinch myself. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. But the problem beneath the surface is that if somebody were to ask me, like, how are you? How's it going? I, I would say, I'm fine. But beneath the surface, I was anything but fine. I was exhausted. I was overwhelmed. I was facing all kinds of imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to be the one navigating this community? Who am I to be the one to lead us and to guide us? I I feel so, um, you know, beyond my capacities and abilities. And and I really found myself, Amanda, on the, the doorsteps of burnout. And, um, you know, there was a part of me that was like, here I am doing the work of God, but the work of God is literally deteriorating inside of me. And, um, I, I didn't want to have one more story of, of burnout and, and, you know, just a a breakdown. I, I really was like, God, there, there has to be another way. There has to be a way to live our lives and and not push ourselves to the point of of not really being here and that's that's really what i felt i felt like i'm here but not really here like mm-hmm. my body is here with people i can answer questions and say i'm fine everything's good but the truth was my heart was somewhere else and my mind was somewhere else and and when i really started noticing i realized oh i don't know how to live in the present moment that's what's, that's, what's missing. I am, you know, I started like almost following the breadcrumbs of, of where I was and, and my breadcrumbs were either in the past. I was rehashing things that had already happened, like literally trying to change things that I could not change, <laughs> or I was out in the future and I was trying to control things. Uh, you and I've had lots of conversations about how we love to control things in life. And I was out in the future trying to control things that I actually had no control over. And I realized that, you know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but the only place to experience God is in this now moment. And I wasn't in the moment. Mm -hmm. I was not where my feet were planted. And that's why there was so many um, levels of just extreme exhaustion and worry and anxiety and stress and rehashing and rehearsing. And I realized, okay, 
I need to learn how to be here. And so that's where the question came from. What's here now? Yeah. And, and, you know, I've asked, I've asked yes. you this question many times. Um, and it is kind of like my spiritual mantra now. Mm-hmm. I just ask myself regularly, Hey, what's here now? Like, what are you sensing in your body? What are you feeling in your heart? What are you thinking in your mind? And it's almost like this, this locator, right? You know, like when you go to, to the mall and there's like, you're trying to find a store, you're at the airport, you're trying to find a terminal and there's that big red dot. Right. And I'm like, okay, this is my, this is my red dot to come back into the present moment. And, and to just literally, can I bring loving acceptance to what's here in this now moment, instead of trying to change everything and control everything, can I actually just try and receive what's here? Yeah. Yeah. It is so hard. Like it says in your subtitle. So the book is what's here now. And the subtitle is how to stop rehashing the past and rehearsing the future and start receiving the present. I'd love to break it down and talk about each of those for a moment. So, cause some of us, some of us live in the past. Some of us live in the future. Some of us do both, right? You know, like I, I'm not, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone who would say, I am just so good at being present all the time. Um, I, I personally have yet to meet that person. So if you exist, I, I'd love to, I'd love to chat with you. <laughs> um, and I, I can think of people I love even, right? Because of course, it's easier to think of other people who I know do this, not myself. <laughs> but um, let's start with rehashing the past. What what do you, would you say to someone who really uh, beats themselves up, lives in shame, just kind of plays scenarios over and over again in their mind? Like, Aside from asking the question, what's here now, to draw them to the present, what other advice or wisdom would you give that person? Yeah, you know, um, I, I realized in, in the process of, of my own recognition that I was not in the present, I, I really started to pay attention to what were the, the signs? What were the markers? You know, what, what were the tells that I was in the past? And, and for me, um, and I, I think these are universal to all people. Uh, I started to notice that blame was a big one. Anytime I was directing responsibility on someone or something else, I was rehashing something in the past. I wasn't in the present moment. I noticed this a ton in, in our marriage. I noticed this a ton in my parenting. Like if, if I was in a posture of blaming Jarrett, uh, we had, we just have this great new counselor. Uh, her name is joy. And uh, one of our last sessions, she had us turn and face one another, Amanda. And she said, I want you to answer this question. Here's how I am bringing disconnection to our relationship. Oh, and I just want you to go back and forth. And I was like, okay, joy, I, I would actually like to start by saying, here's how he's bringing disconnection uh-huh. to our relationship. And that's blame, right? That's blame. And, and I watched Jarrett and I take responsibility take a, a sense of, of, of looking inside and going, okay, here's how I'm bringing disconnection to our relationship. And I watched blame melt and I watched us come back into the present moment with mm. one another. So blame is a big one. Shame. You just mentioned that's another one, which I just like to say that shame is self-hatred at my expense. And mm. anytime I'm pouring on self-hatred at my expense, I'm rehashing something from the past, um, unprocessed grief. You know, we are not meant to give into grief and just, you know, grief just laps up on our shores and, and we just kind of give into 
It, we're meant to actually go into grief and to do the work of grief. And so anytime unprocessed grief is there, it's a tell, it's a sign. Oh, I, I'm not in this now moment. Um, bitterness is a mm. huge one that I have had to do so much work on because I realized nobody wins with bitterness. You know, the, the person that you're holding a grudge over usually doesn't even know you're holding the grudge and, and the grudge ends up having a hold on your heart. And so working through those areas of unforgiveness and then guilt, right? Just this silent suffering from the mistakes that we've made. And, and those five things, I, I just started noticing anytime they showed up in my life, I was not present. Mm. And they were, they were sometimes really loud and boisterous. And sometimes they were just these quiet whispers of, oh, you're trying to live in the past. And, and that's a great place to learn from, but it's a terrible place to live. Um, I'm I'm all about doing my work in therapy and counseling and with spiritual directors and group work, right? There's so much to dig in the dirt of our story and uncover that is, is critical to our healing, but the past, we cannot live in the past. When we try to live in the past, it actually causes so much disconnection in our relationships with one another. And so, you know, I would just say to the person that finds themselves regularly rehashing, like you just kind of mull it over in your mind. It's constantly, you know, running across your thoughts. You know, our, our good friend Kelly likes to say the ticker tape of our mind, right? And, and, and you just find yourself always here in your mind, you're living in the past. I would start to encourage you to, to ask yourself like, okay, where am I sensing this in my body? Like the body doesn't lie. The body is incapable of telling a lie. And so your body is holding it somewhere. Where are you feeling it in your heart? Like what emotions are attached to, to that rehashing? And then what are the thoughts that are regularly running through? And, and I think just bringing some healthy noticing and naming of those things, it gives us permission to bring loving nurture into our lives. So many of us are just pouring on condemnation. Mm. We're just pouring self-judgment on ourselves and it's keeping us locked up in the past. And so I, I often will just ask people, can you just be with the fact that that's where you are? Like, can, can you notice it, name it, and actually bring some loving nurture to it instead of condemnation? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good word. And what was coming up for me as you were sharing is actually something I'm not sure if I've ever really articulated to you, but I definitely learned from you and from working at Soul City Church and the staff culture that I got to experience, which was really wonderful and truly life-changing. Um, and that is, and, and, and it applies totally to this rehash in the past. And here's why. I feel like some churches and some spaces in Christian circles are all about grace. And that's amazing. I, I don't think we can get enough grace. We need a lot of it right? That's wonderful. And then you have other churches that are all um, take responsibility, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do better. And that's great. We need that too. Um, I think what I learned in the season of being a part of your church was that grace comes first, personal responsibility comes next. They work together. You can't have one without the other, or at least the gospel that I subscribe to, the the Jesus I read about in the gospels and the relationship that I've built with the Lord. I feel really strongly that in order to 
get to the present. So I'm not rehashing the past all the time. I have to one, accept grace that was given to me for the mistakes that I have made. Otherwise, I just live, like you said, in a shame cycle and I end up wasting my life, honestly, because all of my days are spent just beating myself up for something I can't take back. And then there's part two, right? That personal responsibility. Okay, great. I've accepted grace. But now in order to not continue to sin, because I believe that when we're in a relationship with Jesus and we're in transformation, it's not just, oh, you know, grace upon grace, like you're good now. There's a kind of this part two and let's grow. Let's evolve. Let's not repeat those sins over and over and over again. If we are, there's a disconnect. There's something missing. And so that personal responsibility comes next. And when you take personal responsibility and you start to grow, it's also easy to not be in the past because it requires your full presence. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of what's coming up for me. It makes complete sense. It's naming that grace and growth are inseparable. That they can't be, they're woven together so tightly that when you start pulling the threads on them, they can't come apart. We we cannot just um, rest on grace or rest on growth. They have to be in tandem with one another. And your beautiful language of, you know, of, of owning grace, really receiving it and taking personal responsibility for our decisions and for our lives and for our behaviors. And, and we can only do that in the present moment. Yeah. You can't go to the past and, and change something that has already happened, but we can take personal responsibility in this now moment with ourselves. And, and you've probably heard me say this. I feel like relationships are the litmus test of our growth. Mm-hmm. They're the litmus test of our transformation you know, Eric is going to be one of the first people to know if you are really growing. Shia is going to feel that even though he can't say any words to you yet, right? <laughs> He's going to know if this growth is real. Just wait till your kids are teenagers, right? My kids are like, come on, mom, this is not what you talk about in your book, right? <laughs> um, I mean, they just, they just pour it back on me and I love them for it because they're calling me to take personal responsibility and live in integrity with the growth that God has invited me into. Yes. Yes. It's so good. Yeah. I imagine having teenagers like you do is a fun time. I'm sure it's just fun all around. Oh, it's so much fun. We were on spring break and our flights got delayed and everybody was tired. We didn't arrive to the the hotel till like, I don't know, like well after midnight and I could tell everybody was just like all over the place emotionally and in our thoughts and in our bodies. And I'm like, guys, how about we just all ask what's here now? And they're like, mom, we are not doing your book. (laughs) I love it. Oh my goodness. So yeah, they they put it right back on me. But, um, but you know, yesterday morning, um, and, and I'm not sure when, when this will come out, but we all just learned of the just devastation of, of what occurred in Texas. And then obviously, prior to that in Buffalo and in the shooting in California. And it actually served as a really beautiful question at our breakfast table. And, and before Elijah and Gigi went off to school, we all just went around the table and, and answered, okay, what's here now? Like, h- how can I be in this present moment? And it is a really powerful question to come into connection and belonging with your people. Yeah, I love it so much that I've started using it with people. Um, My friends all know, similar to Eugenie, I live like very deep. I don't do well with small talk. It's probably why I haven't actually always been like a 
a person who I'm not the fun friend. Like I'm not the person people call when they want to have a fun time. I'm usually the person people call when like their life's a mess and crap has hit the fan. And I'm really good at those scenarios. I'm not really good at like, let's go out and have a good time. That's, I mean, I've gotten better. I'm trying to lean into that seven wing. Right. But anyway, all that to say, I've started using the question, what's here now with people. And, um, most recently I'll just share briefly. I used it with a Zoom call, uh, a client that I'm working with uh, on helping her finish writing her book. And I could just see on her face that she looked maybe a little tired, maybe a little disheveled. I just I just was curious, like, hmm, I wonder what happened this morning or what she's bringing into this conversation before I just dive straight into work. And I'm pretty good at asking people, like, how are you? Like, that's typically my go-to question. But again, like you've said, that often elicits a response of, oh, I'm good. And we sort of move on or I'm fine. And of course, you know, people now are starting to say, no, how are you really? And that's also a fine question. But when I looked at her and I said, I just want to start with asking you, what's here now? And I didn't give her any explanation or any prompting tears came. We hashed out a whole conversation and we hardly got to the writing, but it was exactly what needed to happen in that moment. And I mean, my own therapist uses her own version of what's here now with me every Tuesday when I meet with her. And it's, it's so amazing. I am so grateful. Okay. I want to talk about rehearsing the future because yes, for as much as some of us or many of us struggle with rehashing our past, I know for Eric would not care if I share this, Eric and I always talk about he is a seven. He, not that it's all about the Enneagram, but just to know an Enneagram seven is to know like they're very forward thinking, future, optimistic, romanticizers, right? All the things. And so he is often longing for and rehearsing for the future, what's not even here yet. And it can steal him away sometimes from the present. And so we have lots of conversations about this. And I'm curious, you know, when's a time that you, what what does that look like for you? What does rehearsing the future even mean? Or what does that, what does that mean to someone who may not even understand what we're talking about? Yeah, well, I, I really identify with Eric and, um, you know, for, for me, I think we all have tendencies towards either rehashing the past or rehearsing the future. And I definitely have a tendency more towards the future. I'm an ideator. I'm a visionary. I have, you know, stacks on stacks of all the things I'm going to do in this life. Um, I'm married to a seven. So, I mean, we're just a a great old combination with one another. (laughs) And um, I think the, the, the reality of rehearsing the future is the same way that there are some signs around how we rehash the past, there are signs of, of when we're rehearsing the future and when it's not a healthy um, planning, when it's not a healthy envisioning. I think worry is a big one. And um, gosh, it is, you, you and I've had lots of conversations about this. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Worry is at an all-time high. And you know, the amazing thing about worry and anxiety, Amanda, is that worry is just living and a not yet that's worse than your now. Mm, it's say that again. In, worry is living in a not yet that is worse than your now. You create a fictional construct, a fictional reality that is worse than your factual reality. And then you live there in your mind and, and all of life kind of becomes consumed around that. I think denial is a big one as well. And it's this defense mechanism that we use out in the future to, to avoid pain, to avoid growth, to avoid transformation. Pretending is another one, um, you know, camouflaging 
our authentic selves, um, which, you know, just causes us to look for approval, control, or security from anything other than God and, and, and the truth of who we are within obligation, you know, shooting on ourselves over and over and over again. And, and should is just this vicious cycle that takes us from obligation to resentment to entitlement, then to escape, right? And, and it just, it's this cycle that we just continue to, to go through. And, and then control, which is a big one for, for me in a way that I tend to leave the present moment and go out into the future to try to take authority and influence over some kind of specific outcome, right? And it is, all of these are ways that we keep ourselves from the gift of this present moment. We keep ourselves from being where our feet are planted. And I think those of us that, um, and it's good to plan for the future. It is good to have a, a healthy vision for what you want to see happen in your life. It's just that the future is not where you're living. The present is where you are living. And your relationships are going to start to suffer and struggle if all you do is try to live in the future in a present relationship. It actually causes a lot of tension and anxiety and disconnection Mm -hmm. from the people that we love. And so regularly, uh, I'll I'll notice in in my relationships, okay, if, if we're just talking about something that we're both worried about, we're actually not really here in this now moment. If all we're doing is discussing things that we're trying to control out in the future or change about the future, we're actually not experiencing the gift of being with one another in this now moment. And I think one of the the beautiful things about coming back and receiving the gift of the present moment and just naming what's here in our bodies, asking ourselves this question, what's here now, is that we can actually name and identify when there's worry or anxiety. You know, it's it's a really powerful thing to give the gift of presence to another person. Um, and, and I saw this just yesterday. Um, both of my kids said, I'm feeling a little nervous to go to school today. I'm, I'm feeling a little worried. Well, had we not asked that question and had they just gone into their day, they would be rehearsing all kinds of scenarios that may not happen. Mm-hmm. And then it keeps them from the present moment. It keeps them from actually being wholehearted and healthy. And as their mom, I was grateful to be able to see them. You know, all of us, all we want is to be loved and to be seen. Mm-hmm. I, I'm convinced that. That is the heart's desire of every human. Do you love me? Do you see me? And when we answer this question, and, and like my kids did yesterday, and they, and they both named, there's some worry here, right? There, there's some anxiety here. I got to see them right where they were. I got to love them, embrace them, not necessarily even try to like control and change it, but to just be with them and say, I see you. I get that. That makes sense to me that worry is here. Um, I just want to sit with you here for this minute and, and talk about how do you want to go forward in your day? And it was a beautiful conversation of just being present with one another. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so good. And I think what I'm loving that I'm hearing is that what's here now when when someone answers that question and you're on the other side of them, depend really it doesn't even matter what they answer. It's not our job to like jump in and fix or I know like one thing I learned from you is you don't offer people a tissue. I've sat in your office many a times crying my eyes out uh because you've asked me, "How are you?" and I'm like, "I'm good." And you're like, no, your eye is twitching. You're not good. How are you? And then you wait and you give me the space, you know, and, and obviously that's evolved into what's here now. And anyways, I've lost I've lost it and then I'm crying and I don't like crying. But you don't offer people a tissue because you feel you, I've heard you say you feel that that can communicate like clean it up. And, and you never want people to feel that you want them to to just be able to have that emotion to take up that space because you want to be present with them. And so one thing I feel like I've learned as well from you and from reading this book that is a huge takeaway that I think so many people need to hear is not only how to be here now themselves, but what do you do when you're sitting with someone and they bring up what's here for them in that moment? Because so often we just go towards like we feel awkward and uncomfortable. And so we want to like clean it up, uh, help fix it. I'm a fixer. Like it's really hard for me. But I've been really working on saying I hear you. And like you said, I see you. I love you. Yeah. So many of us, Amanda, we, you know, we have tendencies and, and anyone that's even, you know, put their toe in the waters of counseling has learned about fight, flight and freeze. Well, I think there's a fourth F and I think it's fix it. I, I think that we try to fix what we're feeling. And an emotion is literally just energy in motion. That's all an emotion is. It is not looking for an answer. It is just looking for the space to be named mm-hmm. and to be felt. That's all an emotion needs is healthy space. It's when we constrict those emotions. It's when we deny those emotions. It's when we try to push our emotions underwater like a beach ball. It pops out sideways and it pops out sideways in our relationships with one another. And so much of of the good work of being present in our relationships, present with God, present with ourselves, present with each other, is just learning to, to name what's here and to actually feel it. Like, and I think that we've identified some emotions as really good emotions and other emotions as really bad emotions. But what if, what if an emotion is just looking for space? It's not looking to be identified as good or bad. It just needs some healthy space to be felt all the way through. I woke up yesterday and I felt anger. I felt so much anger and rage in my body of, of living in a country where 19 fourth graders lose their life and two teachers. And, and I didn't try to say to anger, oh, you know, you really shouldn't be here. Mm. I'm going to try and push you away. I allowed myself to just sit with my anger, to, to feel it through my body, to feel those pulses, you know, through my heart space, through my arms, through my legs, and to just be with it in a healthy way. Because if I wasn't able to be with it in a healthy way, it would eventually come out in a really unhealthy way. Yeah. I'd probably go and say something online that I would regret. Mm. I'd probably get into a fight with somebody that I didn't really need to get in a fight with. And all my anger was looking for was to be felt in a really healthy way. It's when we don't feel those things in the healthy ways that they come out sideways and they end up causing so much more pain. It's part of the reason why I don't give people a tissue 
it's not that I'm not compassionate or empathetic. I just believe their body is telling me that there is some liquid love in their eyes that needs to be released. And if I physically offer them a tissue and say, wipe that away, that liquid love shouldn't be coming out of your eyes. I'm essentially saying your sadness needs an answer. Mm. And what if their sadness just needs to be felt? They need to feel it through their body. So much of my good grief work is just learning how to be with the the emotion of sadness. And I'm just as uncomfortable when I cry. You know, there's that part of me that still wants to fix my feelings, but I'm realizing the body can't tell a lie. And so if my body needs to shed tears, there must be something that I've been holding in that needs to be released. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And I love that grief is something you talk about in your book because it's this really awkward thing that I feel like nobody wants to talk about. I I mean, I certainly don't. I don't think I'd ever really experienced grief. I'd never really had a significant loss in my life um, until one of the first losses, which is a weird one to explain too, because not a lot of people can relate, but was through foster care. It was losing children who are still alive. They're just are no longer in my life or, or the way that they were and, and kind of grieving the picture of what I thought might be and and all of that. And I'm curious, is there one particular story in your book, grief related or not, that stands out to you as like a really big turning point in your story that you learned all of this or, or a part of this through that uh, either unfortunate event or just through that happening. I, you you open up and share some vulnerable stuff in this book. So I'm curious which which one stands out. Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned even the, the shift and the change of some of your different kids moving into different seasons and no longer living with you. And you naming that as a loss, you naming that as a grief. And really all change in our lives is a loss and all loss changes us. And I think so many of us are are afraid to name that as grief, but it is. And and healthy grief work actually helps us move through that loss and 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 metabolize it in a really healthy way in us. And um, I mean, you were uh, you were there when I in 2019 I lost my brother really suddenly, um, my younger brother, and it was one of those phone calls that you know, there is a, a before and an after with that phone call. And, and I imagine there's probably many people listening right now and they've had a before and an after they've had a phone call that changed everything. And my younger brother passed away in his sleep and left behind my sister-in-law and seven month old nephew. Mm. And it rocked my world. It rocked our family's world. It reignited old grief um, from the loss of my dad, uh, from about 12 years before that. And I tell the story in the book of, um, about six weeks later, I was scheduled to go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro, which I'm, I'm not a mountain climber. Um, so let's start with that. Um, I was scheduled (laughs) to climb a mountain. The first time I walked into REI was the first time I actually walked into REI and I was like, I'm climbing a mountain. Can I have some gear? And they looked at me like, Oh, good God. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I climbed this mountain and, and I was in the middle of nowhere, nowhere in the middle of Africa, no cell service, you know, n- nothing. And 
we were walking one day. Um, this was the second to last day. And I, I will never forget this, Amanda. We were walking across this plane to get to base camp, which was the night before we were going to summit. And it was hot and the sun was beating down. And, um, you know, I had my backpack on with, with all of my gear. And somebody turned on some music as we were walking. And that song, uh, The Reckless Love of God, came on. And there's a line in that song that says, there's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. And something just broke open in my heart. And I heard that song. I mean, I can still feel it to this day. Um, Tears here in my eyes right now. Um, Something just broke in my heart and that grief just came to the surface. And I wept. I wept on the side of that mountain and just let all of the, the sorrow and the sadness and the confusion and the anger and the why and the how and all of it just like poured out of my body. And I had been holding it, right? I had just been holding in this grief and it needed to come out of me. And And I'll never forget at some point um, in the midst of my sobbing and in my crying, one of the guides that was like leading us through the mountain came up to me and took my backpack off. And after a little bit of time there of just silence and the people that I was climbing with, they just held space. They, They didn't try to fix my tears. They didn't try to make my grief go away. They just let me be with it. We, we kept walking after, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes of me literally just sobbing on the side of a mountain. And we got to camp later that day and the guide came back up to me and, and handed me my backpack. I didn't realize that he had carried it the rest of the way. And in so many ways, um, I felt like he was like, I'm going to carry your grief. Mm-hmm. I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to carry your grief alongside of you. And, and I just said, I had no idea that I let go of my backpack. Thank you for carrying it. And I said, remind me your name. And he said, oh, my name is Emmanuel. Mm. And I was like, what? Your name is Emmanuel? I was like, that can't be. Your name has got to be Joe. Like, (laughs) that that, that is not possible. And, Mm. And Emmanuel means God with us. And I just had one of those moments where I was like, it's true. There is no mountain that God won't climb up coming after us. And I would say in the midst of grief, in the midst of grief, it is one of the most fertile soils where God does some of the most transforming work in our lives. If we let him, Mm. if we let him. And, um, I know in my story, um, that has been true. And, you know, um, my lights went out <laughs> in my office. They're on like, a- Oh, take your, take your time. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that has been true for me because, you know, when, when ungrieved loss shows up in our lives, there, there are signs, right? We become these chronic complainers of, of the loss that's there. We have a guarded heart. Um, because we're so afraid that more loss is going to happen. Resentment forms, um, isolation. I've watched so many people, especially through the last two years, let alone the last two days, right? 
that isolate inside themselves and they repress their emotions, but, but grieving through our losses actually eventually gets us to a place of peaceful appreciation. We never, we never get to a place where we say, I'm grateful that that loss occurred, but I believe that we can get to a place where we can name and we can say, I appreciate all that this loss has grown in me. Mm. And I, I remember the morning of my dad's funeral. Um, I remember looking in the mirror and, and, and putting on my mascara and thinking, how is this possible that I'm putting mascara on to go to my own father's funeral? And, and fast forward the clock, same with my brother. Um, and there was a part of me that just honestly said to God, like, I think one of the things I'm so mad about God is that I know you're going to grow me. I know you're going to change me. I know you're going to transform me through this loss. And in this now moment, all I want is my dad back. All I want is my brother back. But I can now say um, years past those losses, I have such a deep um, gratitude for what God has grown in me. Such a deep appreciation for how it opened my heart, how I I began to realize that peace that passes understanding is not about understanding. Mm. I I think that so many of us think, oh, I'm going to get peace when I understand why this happened. And every funeral I have ever done, I have always said, why is a very empty question. We will never have answers to why. It's one of the mysteries of God, but we can start to ask God, what are you going to do in me? What are you going to grow through me? Um, and, and I think that that can, can build a deeper sense and, and deeper well of, of a person that has walked through grief. And I love what they say in the 12 steps program. They say that the work works if you work it. And it's so true. And it's true of grief. If we do the work of grief, it works in our life to produce fruit. We're not meant to just spend all of our days walking with our grief. There should be something that grows from our grief. Um, But so many of us get so flattened by our losses that we can't even imagine that something good could grow from them. Mm, That's such a good word. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love these stories that you share in the book. I love that you go first and invite us in through your stories. And, um, yeah, it is true. I haven't thought of it the way that you described it, but when I look back at my own loss, um, some people wouldn't even say that is a loss, but it is, it's very much a loss. And so grief can look like unmet expectations, uh, the loss of an idea, the loss of a dream, the loss of someone who is still living. And, you know, as you were talking, even I was thinking about a friendship that I didn't think I needed to grieve it because I was actually really glad to be out of the friendship. Like it wasn't serving me well anymore. It was got really toxic. And so the friendship ended and that felt really good. Initially, uh, for a moment, there was that palpable relief. But very shortly after, I felt really sad. And I remember being like, Mina, why are you sad? Like, this is a good thing. But even hard things that finally come to an end, things that should come to an end, because endings are necessary and they're not all bad, 
there's still often grief there. And uh, yeah, I just, I love that your book gives so many practical, practical tools to process the grief, to move through the grief, and ultimately to come out of that grief, not that it will forever be gone and you'll never have tears over the loss of your dad or your brother again, but, but that you are able to now say, this is what God has done in me because of this. This is how God has worked through me um, and changed my heart in some way because of it. That is so beautiful. I, yeah, I can't wait to gift your book to so many people. I I know it sounds terrible, but I I think even just that subtitle about rehashing the past and rehearsing the future to start receiving the present, I'm like, oh, I need to give that to this person. Oh my gosh, I have to give this to my aunt. I have to give this to, like, there's just so many people because ultimately, and I, I don't want to end on a morbid note, but I will say, you're right. We only have today. We're not promised tomorrow. And and with the recent uh, shootings and just we're, we're recognizing again how fragile life is. It's so uncertain. And I, I know that a lot of people right now are having a hard time finding peace. And I think that's because I don't necessarily know if we find it, um, but God invites us into it. And I, I think you're absolutely right. You're spot on that we can only experience it in the present. Um, and so I am just so thankful that you wrote this book. I've been, you know, I've been waiting for a book. Next, I want you and Jarrett to write a marriage book. I would love that. I mean, we've got ideas upon ideas of things for you to write. Um, but this is this is a, a wonderful start. I love that it's applicable for everyone. It's not necessarily just for women. Like, this is for men too. You pastor a church that's full of men and women. And so uh, I know a lot of my listeners are women, but if you are a guy re- uh, listening to this, you will want to pick up Jeannie's book and you will not only learn about everything we've talked about in this conversation, but you will just get glimpses of so many other things, including how to walk with Jesus, how to be a better leader, how um, yeah, how to grow and be probably the person you've always wanted to be, but without striving to get there and instead surrendering to God. So I I love you, as oh, you know. I love you too. And I am just so grateful that our stories have remained so um, woven together and connected and um, grateful to be able to share this with your listeners. And Amanda, you know that I think this about you, but the way that you show up in the world of just a voice of truth, uh, a bright light of love, uh, an advocate, a challenger. Mm-hmm. I love all of these parts of you and so grateful um, for the role you played in my life. Thank you. That means-